I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. You know, I'm always embarrassed when I take those little surveys that ask me what my hobbies are. And the first thing that comes to mind is watching TV. But there is no question that the Gilbert men love watching them some sports. And so we've been clearly enjoying um, March Madness, wondering why the Seminoles did not foul somebody with 11 seconds to go last night. But I digress. But, you know, watching March Madness reminds me, you know, this wasn't happening when I was, when I was growing up in sports, but this thing called instant replay. I don't know what you think about it, but I hate it. I detest it. It slows the action. It disrupts the flow. It's controversial, and half the time the guys still get it wrong. Am, am I right? Although, however, I will admit, there are a few times when the use of replay, when, when things slow down and the officials are able to get a frame-by-frame sort of reset of what happened to determine the actual truth of the matter. Sometimes that can be important. That can be critical. And in a lot of ways, that's what John is doing for us in his gospel as we come to chapter 10. He is slowing things way down. John is 21 chapters We started about a year ago. We're going to finish up chapter 10 today. This has covered roughly three years of Jesus' public life and ministry. We now spend the next 11 chapters on the last week of Jesus' life. And so clearly, John is wanting us to slow down for a reason. He's really wanting us to capture our attention, to focus on some really critical matters, some really important things that are at the heart of his gospel And I believe that what John, the text that we're going to look at this morning in John 10, sets the stage for all of that. It sets the stage for us to continue to wrestle with the question that John has put in front of us from day one, and it's simply this. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe? That matter is of not just temporal importance in terms of the way you live your life and having a better life now and those sorts of things, but it's a matter of eternal importance. There is no singular thing that's more important than what you and I believe about the claims of Christ. And John is going to set the table for us that will launch us into the rest of this book. And so why don't you stand as we read from John 10 this morning, 22, through the end of the chapter. Now, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in spence? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. 
from which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you were gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. May God give us eyes to see and ears to hear his word this morning. Let me take your seats. Before we dive into the meat of this passage, I want to just point out some things that are happening at the beginning and the end of this text that I think will give us the flavor of what John is wanting us to feel and absorb this morning. This passage, as John often does, is just oozing with symbolism and spiritual richness. Now, let me just be honest right up top here. Some of the imagery and things that, that, that I'm seeing in the text... I can't with certainty say this was in John's mind when he was writing this or some such thing, but I do think there are things for us to consider, and as we will find when we study the Word of God, we can study the Word of God our entire lives and constantly be discovering something new, something fresh, something applicable, and some things about this text really came alive for me this week, and they, and they relate to this idea of spiritual life and spiritual death. Jesus is really going to, 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 to press in upon us that this is what is at stake when we consider the claims of Christ. This is not an academic exercise. This is not a seminary class. This is not something we can remain detached from intellectually or emotionally. This is something that commands our attention. And ultimately, as we will see by the two responses in this text, it's either one or the other. Remember at the very beginning of our, or close to the beginning of our series with John, one of our sermons, I know they all, they all stick with you indelibly, okay? But one of the sermons had to deal with this idea that Every single person in the history of planet Earth will be raised to life one day. Every soul is eternal. Every person that's ever lived, your loved ones, people you don't know, that you know, famous figures, non-famous figures, George Washington, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, Adolf Hitler, John F. Kennedy, all, everyone will be raised. And depending upon their conviction about the claims of Christ, it is either spiritual death eternally or spiritual life eternally. So that, that's what's at stake. And so here's some things that are jumping out to me as we dive into this text. Look at verse 22. It says that Jesus is at the Feast of Dedication. And remember that this is right after the Feast of the Booths. It's only three months until Jesus goes to the cross. 
Now, the Feast of Dedication, we don't find anything about it in the Old Testament, but it was a feast instituted in the intertestamental period you might know as Hanukkah. And it was, it was a time where the Jews celebrated the retaking of the temple from the foreign invaders where worship was reestablished in the temple. It's important to note that this is the last piece of Jesus' public ministry in Jerusalem. This is it. You're going to hear the last thing he says during his public ministry in Jerusalem until the Passion Week where he goes to the cross. Now think back with me to John 2. Where did Jesus begin his public ministry in Jerusalem? Right here. And remember that Jesus said some pretty provocative things at that time. He says, you think this is the temple? We'll destroy this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. He was talking about his body. Remember, he was talking about the idea that you think spiritual life is found in a place, but it's not. It's found in a person. I'm the true temple. I'm the fulfillment of your true worship. Don't come worship at a place. Come worship me. And isn't it interesting here? Jesus is returning to to the scene of the crime, so to speak. And as he's making these claims about himself, the Jews are picking up rocks. From where? See, the temple was constantly being built and worked on, the Herodian temple, second Second period Judaism. It was this huge, massive structure. There was always rocks and construction debris lying around. And they pick up the rocks from the physical temple because they want to kill the real temple. See, John is saying spiritual life is competing with spiritual death. Another interesting observation. Look in verse 23. It says that Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon and that it was winter. This colonnade was, was, was a covered structure that the, that the Romans and Herod had built using the foundation or part of the retaining wall of the original temple that the Babylonians had destroyed in some 586 B.C. Remember when we studied the book of Daniel, we, we, we looked at this. And, and this colonnade was a covered structure it was a place to gather large groups, particularly in inclement weather, kind of like a giant pavilion. This would have been particularly important when it was cold, and so, so groups would, would huddle there as they, before they went to worship at the temple. They'd be protected from the east winds. And you get this picture of this kind of Roman architecture, Greek architecture. It's, 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 it's cold outside. The wind is blowing. And I think John is really giving us a spiritual picture here. As Jesus is winding down his ministry in Jerusalem, remember the Jerusalem, the epicenter of religious life, what is supposed to be, this is the place where God reigns. This is where he dwells in his holy place. But as Jesus is winding his ministry down, The spiritual life, you can just feel it in these texts, can't you, is literally draining out of Jerusalem. And as Jesus leaves the center of Judaism, he goes, and look look in verse 40, we're going to the end of the text for a second. Where does he go back to? The place where John was baptizing. Now, why is that significant? Because that's where Jesus began his ministry. That's where flocks of people were coming to faith in him. In fact, it tells us 
in these last three verses of the text, 40 and 41 and 42, they're still coming to faith. There is spiritual life. See, it's not, it's not sufficient for John. It's, he, he doesn't want to just say the religious leaders, the established cultural elites in Jerusalem are rejecting Jesus. He's like, no, no, no. But God is also doing this thing. He's saving his people. He's redeeming his people. Where there's, where there's spiritual death here, there's spiritual life over here. There's people believing. There are people who have embraced the claims of Jesus Christ. And so here, here's where we want to go in, in these next minutes together. We want to unpack exactly what Jesus is saying by this claim. That he indeed, he and the Father are indeed one. And so we're going to look at the explicitness of this claim. And then we're going to shift our attention to say, what does this mean for us? We're going to talk about the exquisiteness of this claim. And what we will see here provides, I think, the subtext of what John wants us to walk away from this gospel and this text with. So look at verse 34, the explicitness of Jesus' claim. It says that verse 24, that the, that the Jews gathered around Jesus. Now understand something. This is not like some bros going to bro down with Jesus at Maple Street. Okay, This is not like sharing a cup of coffee. Let's sit down and reason together. No, no, no. The word where it talks about gathered around is the same word Josephus used for the idea of the Romans encircling Jerusalem before they what? Destroyed it. Okay, so this is, this, is, this is confrontation. This is antagonistic. When they, tell, when they tell Jesus, tell us plainly if you're, if you're the Christ or not, this is not an honest question. The Greek, it literally can be translated, how long are you going to annoy us? Okay, and, and, and we love all you lawyers here, especially when you represent us. But let me just say something like, this is a total lawyer tactic where you ask somebody the question and you already know the answer. They know the answer. They, they've been, this, is, this is a taunt. This is a provocation. They're trying to give them one more opportunity to kill Jesus and dispense of him once and for all. And that's why Jesus simply says in verse 25, I've already told you. I've already told you. But in case you didn't hear me, okay, in case you didn't see my lips moving, let me say it one more time. Verse 30, and here is the essence of the claim that he is making. I think it's a summary statement of the gospel of John. I think it summarizes everything that we've heard about Jesus so far. Verse 30 simply says, I and the Father are one. Now, if you've been with us in this study of John, or even if you haven't been, it doesn't take long to start reading through John to know that this is John's central concern. It's his central concern for his readers. It's his central concern for you and for me. What do you believe about this man? John 1.1 1, 1 tells us clearly, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. John 5, when he healed the, the paralytic on the Sabbath, and the Jews were more offended that he had healed on the Sabbath than anything else. They said, here is this man healing people on the Sabbath. And what, did they, what, were their, what was their charge? Making himself out to be God. We, two weeks ago, 858 or a few weeks ago, we saw this amazing claim that they said, well, who are you? And what did Jesus say? Before Abraham was, 
I am. So this is not new, but Jesus is putting a fresh coat of paint on it to say, let me remove any and all doubt. I want you to be really, really clear about who I am. I and the Father are one. Now, you need to know that when you read the commentaries and look at what scholars say, there, there's all this, this sort of debate about what does that mean, I and the Father of one? Well, that, that doesn't, Jesus isn't claiming anything unique there. He's just saying he's working in tandem with the Father, that they're, that they're, they're after the same sort of purpose. They're working in unity, that they are, um, that Jesus is doing what the Father wants them to do, but there's really no special claim here. And let me tell you why that's dangerous on a couple of fronts. It's, it's dangerous because it completely contradicts what's happening in the text because of all people who know what Jesus is claiming, who knows? The Jews. That's why they picked up rocks to stone him. They understood perfectly what Jesus was saying. <laughs> there was no mistake. They, 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 they understood this. In fact, do you know this is the fourth time in the Gospel of John where they have attempted to pick up stones to execute Jesus because of this charge of blasphemy that he is claiming to be God. So, so, so the first thing we have to say is it's not what the text says. Secondly, though, we have to say when Jesus says that I and the Father are one, in its most clearest way is an expression that we are not just one in purpose, but we are one in being. We are one in essence. In other words, when you see me, you see God. Guys, do you know that the clearest expression and picture that we have of God anywhere is Jesus Christ as found in his word? This is what John 1 gets us to understand, that Jesus came. Understand something. He is God in the flesh. He is the, he exegetes the Father, reveals the Father. That this word came and tabernacled or lived amongst us. The Apostle Paul talks about how the fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul also tells us that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of his being, meaning God. And this is just, uh, let me just pause for a second and say this is a, a crucial theological distinction for us to make, to be very clear what we are affirming when we maintain that Jesus and the Father are one. Because for the church to remain faithful we have to at all cost to maintain the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is totally welcome at the postmodern table when he is a man who we can simply emulate his teachings. That, that will get you a wide audience. Or Jesus is a means to self-help or improvement. Or he is a pathway to wholeness or healing, or spiritual meaning, that kind of Jesus, that domesticated Jesus, he's welcome anywhere, anytime, anyplace. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Jesus of this gospel. That's not what Jesus is claiming himself to be. That's not who John is presenting him as. That's not how he was understood to be. That's why we can't say things like, 
I like Jesus, just not the Bible. Or Jesus, but not propositional truth. No, no, no. Jesus, but not theology. See, the Jesus of this gospel doesn't leave us that option. These are profoundly vital, internally important theological issues. Let me ask you again, what do you believe about this man? You may say, Pastor Paul, I've got to be honest. I'm not sure I'm ready to go there. (laughs) That's that. And you know, I, I really appreciate when people say that because that to me tells me they truly understood or have begun to understand what Jesus is claiming. But what I find amazingly encouraging about this text, and it, remember, these are, things are tense. They have rocks in their hands. They're getting ready to push Jesus off the temple mount. They want to stone him. But listen to what Jesus says, and, and this is the last thing that Jesus says in this text. I find this just fascinating. And by the way, I'm, I'm indebted to, to Dr. John Piper for this observation. It's really, really good. Look, listen to what he says in verse 37. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Now, this is great. But if I do them, meaning the works, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, what what is he saying there? The two words, to know and understand, are the same Greek word. means to know, genoskel. But they're in different tenses, the past and the present tense. You could read it this way. Believe in me, believe the works that you may know, and that so that you may go on to know more fully. In other words, if it seems a little bit much to bite off at this point, a little too much to chew on, this Jesus is God and only way to God and exclusive claims of Christ, if that seems a bit much, just hang around a little while. Watch what I do. Watch the works that I work. Watch the miracles I perform. Watch the lives that I have changed and you will find that they ultimately point to me. Because next week we're going to have a couple of baptisms here, Lord willing. I'm going to hear the story of a guy or two who fell into that camp. They were not ready for the full enchilada. They, 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 they just, they, people around them were being changed. Their families were being changed and wives and children. And they were kind of tagging along and just seeing what all the, the ruckus was about. But they just weren't quite ready to bite off the whole thing. Yet those guys will tell you they found themselves strangely drawn to what happens here because they couldn't explain away the changes they were seeing. They couldn't explain away the things that were happening in their friends' lives, their families' lives, their spouses' lives. They they came to church for a season and were like, "I, I don't know what all this is about. I just know that these people are different. I know that something spiritual is happening here. The work of God is is happening, even if I can't explain it. And Jesus says, just stick around. Just stick around. Come and know. Not that that knowing in and of itself is sufficient, but know that you may come to know 
even more. If that's you, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. If, if, you're, if, this is, if your head is spinning right now, and you're thinking about your bills and your marriage and your parenting, and you're just, whoa, Pastor Paul, I don't, I'm, just, I'm not there yet. Just stick around and see what the Lord will do. Four Oaks regulars, let me say this to you. Don't underestimate what God can do in an hour next week. Don't underestimate that. Okay? You know, we're going to do baptisms, and if someone is saved and repents and falls prostate on the front and wants to be baptized, we'll baptize them. But let's be honest, that's probably in that way not going to happen. But you know what? It's time enough for people to say, whoa, I don't, I don't know what that was all about. I don't know how that person overcame that addiction. I don't know how that person experienced that freedom. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand all this. But I know something different is happening. See, Jesus is very gracious to us as he lays out the explicitness of this claim. So what do you believe about him? All right, second last point, the exquisiteness of Jesus's claim. Okay, what do we mean by that? I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by, by, by way of illustration. Susan and I were in, invited to a, a gala event this past weekend um, down at, at Florida State University at the University Club. And so when you have an exquisite affair, what are you supposed to do? Dress exquisitely, okay? Which for Susan meant looking beautiful, which meant for me bathing, okay, for the first time the weekend. So, so, so we were dressed to the nines, and, and Friday night, we're just spiffed out. We're rolling down in our car, and all the kids are taken care of. And, and we, we get down there, and we're, we pull up to University Club. And it's that moment when you realize something's not quite right because we're the only car here. And the only other people here are some FSU students playing Frisbee golf or some, some such thing. And I said, babe, uh, you know, how do I say this? Check the invitation again. And so we, we pulled it back up on our phones, and voila, we realized it was the wrong night, okay? So which we proceeded to drive around Dope Campbell Stadium for 24 hours so we wouldn't have to change clothes, okay? That's what it really meant is I had to shave my head twice over the weekend. But anyway, we were all dressed out for an exquisite event, but it did us no good. Was it useful? It wasn't, wasn't applicable to us. Now, when we say the word exquisite, I'm not talking about fancy when, when I'm applying it to this text. I'm talking about precious. I'm talking about superior. I'm talking about peerless, matchless, one of a kind. There is an exquisite truth here that only comes to be yours by virtue of of embracing the explicit claim of Christ that we just talked about. But if you were here this morning and, and you say, yes, Pastor Paul, that is me, there is a precious, precious truth here for you and for me, and it's found in verse 27. This is sort of the fruit of the explicitness of Christ. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
that word snatched, Jesus uses it twice. It means to rest control of something. That's W-R-E-S-T, to rest control, to wrench out of one's grip or hand. You know, you guys know that our, our senior hires are over in Laguna Beach uh, trying to scrub the mildew off their dormitory walls over there before they leave no, for, their, for, for their retreats. And God bless them. I know they're having a great time and pray for their safe journeys back. God bless our chaperones, that's all I've got to say, okay, and youth pastor. But, but back in the day when I was in youth ministry, we, we perfected a game called Steal the Bacon. And it was here where we, we, we dug a big mud pit and filled it with water. And I'm looking around over the, the crowd this morning. I see some of you who were in that pit and who were permanently scarred because of it. And, and we, would, we would put a Frisbee in the middle of that water, and we would line, line up kids and partners and, and one team against another, and we would call out numbers randomly. And we, if your number was one, you and your partner would run out at the same time towards the middle of that pit, jump in the mud pit, grab the Frisbee, and try to get back with that Frisbee to your side to score a point. And why were they trying to score points? Just because... We said that was cool. That's what you did. Anyway, so, so they did it. And by the way, it, it cost us a couple of trips to the ER, but it was well worth it for our entertainment, believe me. But to see these kids try to wrest control of this object from one another, pulling with all they could to hold on to it or to get away from someone. Some of you, let me, let's be honest, you're experiencing your salvation and spiritual walk this way. If you're honest, you will say, Pastor Paul, I just feel like I am holding on. The world, the flesh, the devil, sin, I feel like my hold on Jesus is so tenuous. I feel like at any moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fall away. I'm going to lose it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to drop out. I'm not going to finish my race. I, I can't sing that song we just sang and say that Jesus is holding me. Because let me just say something. While your feelings are very real, that doesn't make them true. That, they, that is not the highest reality in your life and my life if you have placed your faith in Christ. Let, let, let me just tell you what the New Testament teaches and what this passage teaches, and it's simply this. From before the foundations of the world, God had a people. He said, before the foundations of the world, I, I have chosen them to be adopted as my sons and daughters, to be made into the image of Christ. I, I have this people. I call them sheep. And one day, I'm going to send my son Look at verse 29. It tells us this. I'm going to send my son who is coming to claim those sheep, who's going to die for them. Understand something. Jesus did not come to die for a hypothetical flock. Jesus did not run a cosmic risk by dying on the cross, given the opportunity that no one, is it possible, could actually turn to him in faith. No, no, no. He did not do that. He came with a definite purpose and mission, and that was to pay the price, the penalty, for the sheep that the Father had given him. And that these sheep, amazingly, despite the fact that they're sheep, will eventually hear his call. They will hear his voice. As verse 27 says, they will respond in faith. Jesus says, that's reality. That is what is true. 
And because of that, nothing, nothing can separate God's people, God's sheep from him, the shepherd. Verse 29 says, I, I just got fixated a little bit on this this week. I just, verse 29, I think is just an amazing verse. My father who has given them to me, now listen to this is interesting, is greater than all. What is, what is the all? What is the all? You'll have to answer for yourself, but the all is probably anything that we can put into the blank when we are feeling our most vulnerable and distant from God. When we feel as if, as if we are being wrested from his control, as if we are being snatched from his hand. What is that for you? Maybe it was the diagnosis this week. Maybe it's some particular sin that, or addiction that you're enslaved to. Maybe it's an unplanned pregnancy, a divorce you never saw happening, a tragic accident, an attempted suicide. Maybe even it's a death. For, let's don't get that dramatic and say, maybe for some of us, it's just that, Pastor Paul, I haven't read my Bible in weeks. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling it. What is your all? Because Jesus says God is greater than that as he holds you in relationship to him. Now, what I find amazing about this is that this text also gives us a clue as to how that is to happen. In other words, I walk out here from here today, I, I, I hear these truths, I hear what you're saying, I hear what the Bible is teaching, but I still just deeply wrestle with who I am and my assurance. I think Jesus gives us a clue about how we are to actuate this process of assurance in our life. Where does Jesus go when he is challenged by the crowds as to the authenticity of his claim? Where does he go? Psalm 82. We don't have time to unpack that whole psalm and how Jesus is relating it to where he is, except just let me say he's using an, ar an argument from the greater to the lesser, lesser to the greater, where he's saying, in Psalm 82, the shepherds of Israel are those who are given the word of God to do the mission of God. And in that text, they are called God's little g. And Jesus says, if, is simply saying, if these, are, if these men who imperfectly do the will of God and carry his word, are God's, little g, how much more am I the son of God when I do exactly, perfectly his will? The point I want you to take from this is that do you see how naturally the scriptures flow from Jesus in his time of need? I want you to think about all the critical points in Jesus' ministry he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. What does he say? What does he tell Satan? Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's being tempted on the cross. He's being tempted in the garden. He is, he is literally pulling out the Scripture from the depths of his soul. Because that is the point, even 
even for the Son of God, where assurance and confidence and courage and steadfastness comes. And if it's true for him, how much more is it true for you and me? And the reason, the reason that the Word of God, the reason that assurance, the reason that who Jesus is, the reason that none of these things can be wrestled with apart from the Word is because of what Jesus says about the Bible in verse 35. Look there. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and here's this phrase, and scripture cannot be broken. Because there's a lot of things that can be broken in our lives. A lot of things that can be messed up. But the word that Jesus uses here, luo, doesn't mean broken like a vase. It means to be removed, to be released. That the word of God cannot be dismissed. The Word of God cannot be dissolved. The Word of God cannot be annihilated. The Word of God cannot be eliminated. John MacArthur says it this way. So what is our Lord saying? This is simply, and this is the the foundation of your assurance, Christian. Scripture cannot be changed. Scripture cannot be loosed, released, removed, dismissed, or nullified. Guys, if your assurance and my assurance is based ultimately, primarily on my subjective feelings, you are done. I am done. We are hopelessly adrift. But Jesus appeals to the Word because the Word functions as our anchor. So do you feel this morning as... If you're being rested, W-R-E-S-T-E-D, from the hand of God, struggling with assurance, how is the Word of God? How are are passages like Romans 8.35 ministering to you? Let me remind you what the Scripture says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? These are rhetorical questions. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, God created the heavens and the earth, and he rested. God created you, made you a new creation through Christ. You were born again, and now you are resting in the perfect assurance that only comes from the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. So I ask you again as we close this time, who do you believe Jesus is? Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and that is a precious truth.